Welcome to episode 152 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Brian Levin. Today we caught up with Beth Dean. She's a designer at Facebook. She's also an illustrator. She makes comics and toys. And we had a great time digging into her story and learning about the work she's been up to. But before we get into that, we want to thank our sponsor for this episode, and that is Wayno. Wayno. U-E-N-O dot C-O. They are an agency here in San Francisco. The best agency. The bestest agency they have an awesome team. The best assisted agency. They're doing killer work for clients that you know, people like Google and Busa Boards and Dropbox and Airbnb and Reuters and Cisco, on and on and on. Uh, they've just assembled an amazing team of people that are awesome designers, but they're just awesome people to hang out with. And they want to hang out with you. Uh, every Friday night, they have happy hour at their office. If you find yourself in the Bay Area and want to hang out, just check out their Twitter. We'll put a link to their Twitter in our show notes. Uh, just follow along. They tweet out tickets to the events and Friday night you can hang out, listen to Hallie interview another rad designer and get to meet lots of cool people. He's better than at it than we are. Okay. So that's first thing. Go to the happy hour. Second, Wayno is sponsoring us because they just want to support what we're doing. And all they ask in return is that if you want to go check out their stuff, uh, they're designing amazing products. You've probably seen them on Dribbble. Uh, if not, they have amazing case studies on their website at wayno.co. You should go read them, check them out. And of course, if you are interested in leveling up by joining a rad team, click the careers link in their header. Wayno is the raddest team. You tell, should be a part of it. Yeah. Tell them we sent you. They are hiring product designers and uh, you should join them. Thank you once again to Wayno. And with that, let's get into episode 152 with Beth Dean. Hi, I'm Beth. I'm a designer at Facebook, and I'm also an illustrator and screen printer, and I make comics and weird toys. Nice. That was an excellent intro. That was great. I don't know why you're so nervous about it. <laughs> that was perfect. because oh, writing bios is the worst thing ever. Right? Yes, it is. And then coming up with them on the fly is even worse. What's your Twitter bio? I think it says prolific hiker, liker of dog pics. Uh, and X who cares because everybody has like this chain of every place they've ever worked. It's like yep. nobody cares. This isn't like your resume. Uh, you could argue. <laughs> Maybe you could, it, is. That's, it has become. That's not what's important. Well, what's it, important is she said weird toys and comics and I want to know more about that. <laughs> what's well, like saying where I work is why you should follow me, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, weird comics and toys. Yeah, I used to do like Comic Con and all of that. Um, I'm kind of I'm kind of glad I don't do comic shows anymore because it's a lot of work and you spend more time preparing for the shows than making comics. But um, yeah, I made this toy. Maybe it was more of an art object called the Emergency Sacrifice Kit, and it came with a, a vial of virgin blood, a test tube, and five black candles, and a set of matches that said, "Be careful what you wish for." Satan's listening, <laughs> and the virgin blood was like custom made and flavored like strawberry, so you could like pour it out in a pentagram and light some candles, and uh, you know try to get like the coveted brunch reservation. At- Mission Beach Cafe or something. Uh, wow. if, if Satan was listening, some of the candles might not go out. So I had to put a disclaimer to, you know, pour some water on them so you don't burn your house down. Holy shit. <laughs> but wow. I couldn't really take those to Comic-Cons because you can't take like test tubes that say virgin blood on a plane. Why not? Uh, I don't get it. <laughs> li- liquids. Also Sorry, matches. you have to have under uh, 3.5 ounces of virgin blood. Yeah, matches. No matches either. Yeah, but the matches you had to order in bulk, so I'll have matches for the rest of my life that say, be careful what you wish for. 
Um, and then I had one called Ghost Barf that was like a clear <laughs> tube, uh, and it had green slime inside with like a finger, like a severed finger suspended in it so that you could go like empty it in like a bar sink and leave it because it would just look like, you know, a ghost had like vomited up a person or somebody had like vaporized. But it was, uh, it was like non-toxic stuff that you could wash down the sink and it wouldn't ruin it because I like didn't want anybody to like kind of like GAC but clear. Yeah. So like, GAC? No, but it oh. sounds so familiar. It was like a Nickelodeon toy. You can make it in science class too. Did you yeah. ever make it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like slime. But then it would get like really gross because you'd like drop it on the ground and it would get hair stuck in it and yeah. stuff. GAC. Yeah. G A K. It's a very name. like early nineties thing, I think. GAC. Yeah, it was like the slime that they had on every Nickelodeon show. Like for a while, every Nickelodeon show, like oh, people got slimed. Like the green slime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like Double Dare and stuff. Got it. Okay. Yeah, you could have your own. I'm curious how you got into making this stuff. So we should start from the beginning. Oh. Where are um, you from? I'm from Ohio, near Cleveland. Um, yeah, I went to school for comic book illustration. I thought that wait, was wait, what wait. I wanted to do. What? Yeah. You can go to school for that? Yeah, I went to art school. I went to study with this guy who drew the Green Lantern. And then when I got to my school... Which uh, guy who drew the Green Lantern? Uh, Daryl Banks. But they replaced him uh, with some guy who did like licensed Star Wars art. So it was kind of lame. And I didn't really want to do comics anymore after I finished. But it was sort of different because like the internet has changed how you become an illustrator. I think if I had gone to school like five years later, I might be an illustrator like professionally. Because um, it was really hard to like break into the industry. Like if you wanted to do independent comics back then, you had to go through traditional channels. So you would get paid peanuts to like pencil like some sort of like third tier DC or Marvel comic, which you also had to be very good to do. And then you'd like work your way up to inking and stuff. And then once you made a name for yourself, then like an independent comic publisher would like trust you with your own title. And now it's like, oh, we have the internet. You can self-publish and then people find you and want to like put out your stuff. And if you wanted to just be like a commercial illustrator, like your options were kind of greeting cards, children's books or editorial. And like you had to have a rep to do editorial and like, now the internet has completely changed that because anybody can promote themselves and get exposure. And it's funny because in school, all of my teachers would be like, don't fill your portfolio with band posters and stuff. And I have so many friends who now like have made a living from that. It's like they do band posters and then like HBO calls and wants them to do like a Game of Thrones show. And then it becomes like, you know, Guillermo del Toro movie or something. And so I have a bunch <laughs> of friends that are like, they're just illustrators and printmakers. Uh, why were you interested in comic books at all in the first place? Why was I? Yeah, how'd you get into that? Um, I don't know. I just sort of always drew cartoons. It's like a good form of social commentary. What do you mean? Uh, I don't know. You see something funny that happens and you can like interpret it visually. It's like, like political cartoons. Sequential storytelling. You, like is the most obvious yeah. explanation. Sorry. I did some for a spin that were, they called it sequential journalism and they'd send you to like a show during noise pop and you would like interview the band and do like What's a comic of it. Uh, noise pop is like an organization in San Francisco that puts on a big music festival. They put on Treasure Island and then oh, they put on the okay. noise pop festival. So yeah, one year they had me go like interview Best Coast and I did like some other bands too and you do like a comic about it and then they put them in spin. Whoa, that's awesome. And you did that. So you did that professionally. I mean, they didn't pay me for that, but <laughs> okay. yeah. Yeah. I used to like do probably every other month I would do comic shows. Holy shit. This was before school or during school? Um, This was after. after. Yeah. I stopped drawing comics for a while after school because I just was kind of like burnt out and I was trying to like find like a web gig that I liked that would pay my student loans. And then later on I started like 
drawing again now that you know the internet made it so you could really like get your work in front of people so i started doing a lot of um like poster design um and then when i got to san francisco so maybe like six years ago i started drawing comics again and self-publishing because i had a bunch of friends that were doing self-publishing and i was like oh this is actually pretty easy and there's like a lot of cool comic shops in the area that are really supportive of like local independent creators who will like stock all of your stuff and like one of them was who hooked me up with the spin gig all right we just breezed through so much stuff <laughs> so you were yeah like which green lantern was it was it hal jordan <laughs> kyle rayner i need to know oh uh it was it was hal jordan but um columbus is actually like a pretty good place for comic artists in general it's where um jeff smith the guy who does bone is from and they have like a pretty good um it was like a very popular long-running independent comic um and harvey picard was my neighbor for a while uh the guy who did american splendor he was like this weird old crank who you would just see wandering around cleveland i never quite had the guts to talk to him because he always looked like he was so pissed (laughs) and then he died (laughs) i know but i contributed to his wife had a kickstarter to have like a statue erected for him at the library because he was a big proponent of the library oh geez yeah he was old he lived a good life why why was the web interesting to you I don't know. I learned to code when I was like 14, I guess. Uh, my first website is actually older than someone on my team <laughs> right now. Wow. It was a GeoCity site. Yeah, they keep getting younger and younger and I keep getting older. Uh, no, first I started making like fanzines on the internet and they had like a bunch of web rings associated with them for like the 90s bands that I liked. Fanzines? Web rings? Fan- yeah. Holy shit, I don't even, I don't even know. There was like- Do you a, know what a zine is? Fanzine? Oh, fanzine. Yeah, fanzine. What's a- a web circle? Web ring? Oh, web ring? Web ring? It was like this like crappy little banner. <laughs> Please, teach you Please teach me What's about the 90s. <laughs> What's Devil Dare? <laughs> Maybe you two are younger than my first website. Should, should we watch Global be. Guts? <laughs> Legends uh, of the Hidden Temple. Yep. Uh, Randy Hunt has actually been on the show and he was actually on Legends of the Hidden Temple, which is like the best story ever. I heard they're bringing it back. Yep. They're making a movie. Oh, Which wow. is very fun. Wow. Um, so a web ring was like a crappy little banner you'd put at the bottom of your site. And I would have a web ring about the band that I liked. And it would link off to another random site in the network. So that's how you would find like other websites that were similar. So you might belong to like, I don't know, a cooking web ring or um, 90s goth chicks, the web ring or something uh, yes. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was, it was sort of like a little like mini network as it were. Okay. So, yeah. so you're coding and building your own websites. Yeah. I got a hold of a pirated copy of Kai's power tools for better, or for worse. So there was a lot of really heavy Photoshop filtering going on. It was like a plugin set for Photoshop that did terrible things to photos. <laughs> okay. Love it. Yeah. Um, I actually, somewhere I found on the, the Wayback machine, a picture from the very first website. And that is the, the first slide I use in all of my talks. So I'm like, I'm just going to show you the most embarrassing thing I've got. Whoa. How could we find it? Uh, I don't think anybody could find it except for me. Cause you have to go through several layers, but I can dig it up for you because it's in a keynote on my computer. I think Wayback machine is pretty much one of the coolest things and i wish that we had that for apps yeah there's some gaps in it though like i wish that i could find the second version because there were even uh more image maps on it right but i can only find the first version crazy okay so you learned to code super young yeah um so i made like music sites and stuff and then when i was in school 
it wasn't something that they really like taught a lot of because it was pretty new. Um, so I took a class in like Flash. I took one in Macromedia Director, which doesn't exist anymore, but that was how you would do a lot of like CD-ROM games or just really like any interactive CD-ROM thing you would do through that. But at the time, um, it was like sound and animation, which was really cool. So I could like make little games and stuff in it. And Director was actually like pretty powerful because at the time, I don't think ActionScript had come out yet. So like Flash wasn't sort of like javascript is now um so i was doing that kind of on the side in school while i was like drawing and stuff and it was fun seeing your stuff come alive in this like frankenstein kind of way and then when i finished school i was like oh i have a lot of student loans and i don't want to draw greeting cards and that's like the only option here because american greetings is here and i noticed that like my friends who are web designers don't live in their parents basement so maybe i'll try that okay how did you start getting paid to do web design then uh, so it took about a year after school because believe it or not, the job market in Akron, Ohio was not like thriving for no. web design. I know, I it's so shocking. Shocked. Um, and my friend's dad. Akron, Ohio. What's that city famous for? Uh, the Black Keys. The Black Keys. Yeah. I went to school with their brother, uh, who went like art school, the guy who got like a Grammy for one of their album covers. I just remember him for walking around with like a boombox on his shoulders all the time. I was like, what? what? Uh, showed. <laughs> but he was actually a really nice guy. Um, what a show. He just liked the boombox. But um, yeah, my friend's dad uh, somehow had an affiliation with a diet patch company, uh, which was like a multi-level marketing scam, which if you're not familiar, is basically like a legal pyramid scheme. Uh, and they wanted somebody to do data visualization for them because it turns out that to most effectively scam people, you need this data visualization to tell you where specifically to have people like sign up. Like you need them to sign up through a specific person uh, so that the person way at the top of the pyramid makes money. So they needed somebody to make like software that would visualize this. Um, So I became like their person that did that and did all of their um, websites and their banner ads. So I was making flash banner ads for Herbal Viagra, uh, his and hers. They had lots of fireworks. Um, And the diet patch, as far as I could tell, was just like caffeine uh, and people would get rashes from it all the time. Holy shit. Yeah. How did you feel working there? Uh, It was hilarious until, uh, I mean, they had like their own in-house mad scientist and he would try and bribe us to like test products with pizza. And I'm like, I'm not that desperate. I might be like a recent college grad, but I don't want pizza that bad. And he What? He would try and get you to do, like take herbal Viagra in exchange for- Or just, there was one thing that was like, I think like an energy thing. And it (laughs) smelled like, uh, I don't know if your dog ever has like an anal gland issue. Like it smells pretty bad. It smelled just like that. Uh It's like, I am not drinking that. But they they made like some other stuff too. But um, yeah, he like freelanced for other people. And so he was working on like a magic mushroom patch for some company in Amsterdam. And I think like an amphetamine one. And I was like, I don't, trust anything coming from you you're probably gonna blow us up that dude sounds awesome uh i think he was addicted to painkillers <laughs> too <laughs> because his pupils were always like really dilated and i mostly felt like i don't know fool and their money are parted you know if you think like you're gonna turn your life around with a diet patch scheme like so be it but we like the engineers and i kept this log called like wacky comments from all the customers which is like what it sounds like and this woman wrote in uh one day and this is like the straw that that broke the camel's back for me she said i went through the change of life about a decade ago but i started using your patch and i got my period again what should i do and i'm like Go to the doctor. <laughs> this is right not away. healthy. 
Like, we cannot dispense medical advice. That's why, like, they called it nutraceuticals because uh, the FDA doesn't regulate uh, nutritional supplements. So you can, like, make any claims you want about it. So that's when I was like, okay, fun's over. Even that seems like it should be illegal, being able to circumvent that. Yeah. Yeah, it's super. I mean, I think that you can get sued for fraud depending on like how outlandish your claims are, but you don't really have to back things up. You can be like, maybe this will, you know, solve all of your problems. Maybe it won't. <laughs> but if you send us six easy payments of thirty nine ninety nine, Yeah, exactly. Uh, they even had like a cruise and stuff that they would take people on and like give away a PT cruiser. Yeah. Shocking. That's well, not still that, in business. That's like offensively bad. Why would people want a PT cruiser? <laughs> <laughs> you can pay to not go on the okay, cruise. Okay, think about who the demographic for a diet patch is. That's fair. You yeah. Have a good point. There are people that really wanted a purple PT cruiser. Mm. Yeah. Free car. You can sell it. Yeah. So At that time, were you like, where was your head at in terms of designing things? Were you, is that like your passion? Did you love it? And No, I hated that. Um, but I was getting to play with Flash. So I was like learning it a little better. And then in my free time, because like, there's only so much design you have to do at a diet patch company. I would make like icons. That was right when um, Firewheel Studio was getting big, which is the people who, uh, it's Josh Williams. So yeah. he made, yeah. yeah, he did like Pack Rat and all that. I signed up for Facebook so I could play Pack Rat. Crazy. Yeah. Um, so that seemed pretty cool. And I was like, oh, maybe I can do like illustration on the web. So I just made like icons for everything on this stupid diet patch company website. Like we had like a Western themed event. So I made like a cowboy boot icon. It was just like drawing. Uh-huh. Once I found something else I could move on to, I did, and I wound up working for a small agency. Uh, but the irony of that was they were the only agency that did illustration for American Greetings. They mostly do everything in-house. And I did not want to do greeting cards, but every time they ran out of web work, they would make me draw greeting cards. Oh. Yeah, I did one for oh, like Halloween once. It's taking extra long. Sorry, guys. I, I had a stint working on <laughs> holiday card like personalizers, and I... Like, I got to work with a lot of those artists. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to do that. No, no, they don't. But I made, like, one Halloween one that had, like, uh, it had, like, googly eyes in it. It was, like, a monster, and you could shake the card, and the eyes would, like, move around. Yeah, so when that came out, I bought, like, all of them in the area. <laughs> and so I would send them out for every holiday, like, have a spooky Arbor Day. They were so successful, the company made you make more. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I worked there for a while. And then I actually left to go work for American Greetings, but not making cards in their like interactive department. Uh, so I would. In Ohio? Yeah. Yeah. So there's like, you know, limited options there. So they had like American Greetings makes the greeting cards, American Greetings properties, which was like Care Bears and Mad Balls and that kind of stuff. And then there was American mad Greetings balls? Interactive. What is a Mad What's Ball? What's a Mad Ball? Uh, that was another weird 90s toy. It was like this weird squishy little ball that had a monster face on it. And then sometimes you'd squeeze them and it oh, would look like snot came out and stuff. They were really oh. gross. Wait, yeah. what would I come out? I know what they were called. Mad Balls, yeah. What would come out? Uh, Like snot or something. Gross. Yeah, they were pretty gross. <laughs> Sounds the pretty 90s fun. was a weird time, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Every um, kid's toy was gross. That was like the whole thing. Yeah, there were a lot of those like weird like mad scientist laboratory kind of toys. Yep, and, like, and you could like make gummy spiders or something. Yes, I was just gonna say creepy crawlies. Yeah, make like the gummy centipedes. Hmm. Yeah, they're really cool. It was a good time to be a kid. Holy shit! I and they would give you your own oven. Yeah, it was like the Easy Bake Oven, uh, like the maniacal version of it. I guess I was just playing with rocks or something because <laughs> I don't know well, any of this. This would have been like. Really early 90s. I mean, like 90s. you would have been like an infant. No. Aren't you like 91, 92? 92. Okay. 
Yeah. So you would have been like an infant. <laughs> yeah, I was playing with rocks or something. I don't, where was my mad ball? <laughs> yeah, I made my first website two years after you were born. Hey, I <laughs> made the cutoff. <laughs> you did. You did just barely. Wow. Um, yeah, I went there and worked on just like how people would do e-greetings. So it's kind of funny to be at Facebook now because Facebook's sort of destroying them. Like nobody needs e-greetings because they can just wish people a happy birthday on their Facebook wall. And they also don't need like an address book that they pay for because it's all in Facebook. Uh-huh. Then why does my mother-in-law always send me e-cards? Oh, old ladies love that stuff. They pay a lot of money for it. My like favorite, least favorite project that I ever worked on was this thing, um, which hopefully they don't come back and sue me, called JackieLawson.com. And Jackie Lawson was this little old lady in the English countryside who, when she retired, took up watercolor painting. And one day she wondered, what would happen if I animated these watercolor paintings? So they had these terrible animations and she turned them into e-cards and American Greetings bought them. Uh, But they didn't want anybody to know because they wanted her to like maintain her authenticity and all of that. So they kept it very, very secret. And so my job with JackieLawson.com was to take their very, very, very crappy website and redo it all with HTML and CSS, like no inline you know, styles or anything, but leave it looking exactly as garbagey. And it still looks exactly the same <laughs> today. But she had like this dog named Chudley. It was like a golden retriever in a lot of the cards. It was like her mascot. And they lost their shit when the dog died. And they found out that like little old ladies were making pilgrimages to this village where she was from because that's what they do and the town had like erected a statue and memorial to this dog and they were like the jig's gonna be up and I'm like why don't you just buy her another dog golden retrievers aren't that hard to come by like call it Chudley 2 <laughs> Chudley part 2 yeah Chudley 2 uh, or just like get her a puppy or something but the website still looks exactly the same they haven't changed it except to add a Facebook like button to it oh shit and people still buy it I think they're like six ninety nine a card or something and like people still send them for an e-card yeah that's like a Netflix subscription. Yeah. Almost. Well, um, on a repeating basis. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Do you send, how many do you send a month? But I think probably Two. the best job at American <laughs> Greetings was they had sound designers, right? But their job was to mostly make like knockoff versions of popular songs so they wouldn't get sued so they could use them in cards. Oh my so you'd God. You'd have to make popular songs, but slightly off. Commercial music is an interesting field. Yeah. Like the kids' pop version of yep. a song or something. Yep. Which they would actually license the mechanical rights to it, but they wouldn't actually like buy the reproduction rights or the. Yeah, yeah it's like when you rights. go and get a bad karaoke version of something. Yeah. What are mechanical rights? Mechanical rights are like the lyrics of the song and the actual like sheet music kind of thing. So like you can reproduce it then, but you can't. Uh, so like you you can do your own version, but you can't play the original version kind of thing. Yeah, and you can't perform it live. Yep. Either. Yeah, so that's kind of a wacky job. Um, How long did you stay there? Uh, I was there for about a year. I was actually, my job title there was like UI engineer. I was mostly doing development, like front end of. Um, but then I started caring more about like UX kind of stuff. And if you wanted to pursue that with any degree of seriousness at the time, the only places that had enough money to invest in like a usability lab were um, banking and insurance. So then I left to go work for Progressive Insurance where I was until I moved to San Francisco. I was there for like two and a half years, I think. And so I did all of their um, billing and payment stuff and I designed like all of their first mobile offerings. Doing, okay. So that's when you started getting into like the more product stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I was doing that, but they also like, you had to code while you were there and it was weird because they like, 
everything was in .NET. Oh, God. Yeah. And to do our user test, we had sort of this like JavaScript spoof version of the app. Like it looked like it rendered exactly like the actual app, but everything was JavaScript. And like if you, you know, breathed on it, everything would fall apart. It was very brittle. Um, and so we'd have to do we'd have to do that. And it was kind of a weird place to work because they didn't really see that things were going towards mobile. So, like, a coworker and I made their first, like, mobile site that wasn't, like, strictly payments. That was for all policy servicing, like, in our free time. Uh, and we threw all of the style sheets um, on my personal server because they wouldn't give me, like, a sandbox to do it. And they wouldn't give us any devices to test. So then I, like, went and opened my policy with it on, like, test devices at the Verizon store. Uh, and so, like, once it was done, then I was, like look, like you can have a mobile website. All you need is some like CSS and like oh, just put this in production. And then they then they did. And I would not be surprised if most of their like billing revenue that isn't recurring comes through mobile. Uh, crazy. So you went from illustrating in comics to- Insurance. To front end dev to- You yeah. sold some, out. Some greeting yeah. code to insurance. I did. But like this huge range of things. Like at, at the time, did you know- what direction you wanted to head or like what um, you, were you honing in on what you wanted to do? I was kind of just following my interests. It was like at first when I was at the Diet Patch Company, I was doing some more illustration and I, you know, dug that. But I also was like getting more interested in code. That was sort of when I learned about like web standards and not using tables anymore to build stuff. And I wanted to do more I still use that. tables. Big fan of tables. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Why use anything else? TRTD. Well, there's a lot of tabular data out there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's the worst. I have to use it for emails, and that is that oh, was like yeah. I was like, oh my god, is this guy serious? No, uh, yeah, email design is like time travel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but with like even more uh, browser exceptions. Yep. Than there used to be. Yeah, the insurance company they had actually built some proprietary stuff on IE6, so we had to support it in perpetuity because it was for their like call center reps. But yeah, I like got into code more and I wanted to do more of that. And then I started to care more about how things like worked. Um, so I wanted to do like usability and user research. So I went to a place that had a lab and like, I probably did in the time I was there, like over 200 usability tests. Like we would, um, we would like do all of our own testing. Like we didn't have in-house researchers. We were the researchers. What did that testing look like? So we had like a lab, um, which is kind of like the Facebook lab. So you've got like a room that is the observation room. So you have a bunch of people in there um, and they've got a screen where they can watch everything that's going on on the screen. And they've got like eye tracking so you can see the little eye movements on there. And then there's like a facilitator room which is like a tiny little room with uh, one-way glass and the facilitator can like ask questions and stuff. And then you have the participant room uh, and they're hanging out in there and using a computer. And the facilitator has like a script that you've written for the test um, and is like prompting the person as they're doing the test. And actually like uh, for the first mobile tests, they did not yet have mobile like mounts that weren't like $3,000. So I built one for the lab and I think it's still the one that they use there. You can build pretty cheap ones now. Yeah, you can build super cheap. You can buy super cheap ones because it's it's like nothing but at the time like you had to go to the same people that sold like the really expensive eye tracking software to buy oh, one it was ridiculous yeah, yeah. yeah and then we'd like zoom the camera onto that how did you even start learning about that because obviously you can but it seems like the researchers that i work with today are like phds oh in yeah research. they're so much smarter than me well yeah. not not that but like it's become a much more defined field in the last few years right? yeah i think that like that was like a field then but not everybody wanted to pay for it, you know, and like there also wasn't as much education for that. Like at the time, if you wanted to pursue that in a school, um, you usually had to go through like a library science program to study information architecture or go through like a human factors program, which is like pretty similar to computer science. Now I think that's opened up a lot more or like 
people that do other areas of research are moving into software mm-hmm. too. But yeah, I was pretty interested in that and I wanted to learn how to do it. And so like that was kind of my MBA that I didn't have to pay for or MFA rather. Yeah. Like learned on the job, you know, which was pretty cool because then I would go to other places where I'd have to like facilitate my own research. And I think it helps me know how to better um, prepare for a test with our researchers now. I'm glad I don't have to do my own tests anymore just because, you know, you can really only do one thing well if you're spread across a lot of jobs. So you're designing, developing and doing the testing, like some stuff's going to slip through the cracks. Right. Right. I agree. So how long did you stay at the insurance company? Progressive? Yeah, I was there for about two and a half years before I couldn't take any more of the flow commercials. Uh, <laughs> yeah, kind of, she still haunts me. To Literally this day. the She's only everywhere. reason you left. Yeah, that campaign is still going. And that was right. like been like six years since I moved here. And like that was going on for one of those. So seven years they've had the same ad campaign. I think it's time to move on, guys. And the person that came up with that idea... Think about the Geico Gecko. It's been around, it has to have been around for longer. That chick who plays Flow is set for life. She never has to do anything else ever again. Like, yeah. What happens when you're, yeah, I'll do an ad and then that ad becomes the freaking national campaign for <laughs> seven years. Why is you that, don't do anything why else? Why is that a bad thing? No, it's great. Just think like, I don't know why certain ad campaigns are so like become that. A little like the Verizon guy? Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Like, we're going to remember that shit for the rest of our lives. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and they say advertising doesn't work. And you can kind of never be anything else after that. Yeah. Like she had been on like Mad Men or something, but like any show she tries to be on for the rest of her career, she's always just going to be flow. They like had commercials of her playing on a loop in the lobby and like cardboard cutouts everywhere. And it just started to feel like I was in a really bad Samuel Beckett play or something. I have to get out of here. Yeah, it was maddening. Also, like it's kind of daunting because people hate insurance. It's like an intangible product that the government makes them buy and they only interact with it when something goes wrong um so i would like collect all these like nps scores and like customer surveys about the part of the application that i worked on every day just to kind of like monitor how things are going and like every day people would be like how can you live with yourself you're a bloodsucker and i'm like oh it's tuesday (laughs) (laughs) uh just gotta get paid sorry yeah i just wanted to work on something that was like the actual product instead of like servicing the product and also something that people didn't hate so yeah i'd wanted to always move to san francisco because my my dad's family is originally from here but you know when i finished school like even like a decade and a half ago san francisco is still a lot more expensive than ohio so i needed to like be a little more competitive in the job market here whereas now like if you've like ever touched a computer when you're coming out of school some company in san francisco will be like please we will give here. you so much money yeah like we'll give you all the food you can ever eat i hope you like ramen uh-huh. <laughs> um but yeah so i just like applied to a bajillion things up and down the West Coast. And I was like, the first the first thing that doesn't sound terrible that pays for my relocation, like I'm done, I'm going. Um, and that wound up being Hotwire, uh, which is part of Expedia. So I was working on travel for a while and I did all of their like internationalization and all of their first mobile offerings too. So at this point, you're like definitely focusing more on mobile product design. Yeah, that seemed like the way things were going. I was kind of interested in it at the time too. Um, and like also I was kind of in a weird place in my industry because at that time I was like on the the younger side of things. Everybody I would work with would be a lot older. Now I'm like, it's like amazing. You go to work at Facebook and suddenly you're like the oldest person there, whereas I'd always been the youngest person. How's that feel? 
terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Why? You have so much more experience. Uh, sometimes good. Sometimes just weird. There's. Did you know there's an over 30 uh, support group internally yeah. for Facebook employees? Didn't someone make an under 20 support group? <laughs> yes. Yes, they did. What? It was like if you're an employee under 20, they have a little secret group. Yeah. It's uh, like a lot of overheards you post in. Um. Yeah, so I was doing a lot of mobile stuff and I was enjoying it, but also doing all of their billing and payment stuff because that was what I had worked on mostly at Progressive. So I was doing a lot of like money related things, which seemed okay. It was like good to have some expertise. But yeah, so since I was still kind of on the younger side of things, a lot of the people I was working with were like very strict UX um, and didn't have a lot of mobile experience. So it was like a really good time to be like sort of at the beginning of mobile design. You had a lot of flexibility in where you could work. So for context, what year is this that you ended up uh, in Um, San Francisco? It's 2010. Okay. Yeah. Pretty recent. Yeah. So that wasn't that long ago. Yeah. But that was still like, I don't know, iPhone version one (laughs) or iPhone version two. Yeah. So like people were just sort of coming around to the idea of like having a dedicated app on their phone. People have been using, you know, mobile sites for a little while, but I feel like people's reliance on that hadn't quite come to be what it is now. Totally. Uh, At the time where you had you gotten into like the toy stuff and the comic stuff. Like about a year after. The books. Yeah. A little, a little later. I mean, I was making poster art still. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing that, but I didn't get into the comics until about a year or so later. And I think it was because I went to, um, they used to have a thing here called Alternative Press Expo, which was in the Comic-Con family of shows, but it was like all the independent creators. And they used to do it, um, what was the name of the place? It's a place that doesn't exist anymore. It's like condos. It's where they used to have like a uh, renegade craft fair and stuff. And I went to that um, and kind of rekindled my interest in comics. And like, also I was like doing m- mobile financial stuff and that wasn't really creatively fulfilling. It well, wasn't lighting your fire. <laughs> no, it was a very like inoffensive place to work, but yeah, like creatively I was like, I want to, I don't know, do something weird. Right. Okay. So that, that came like a year later. Yeah. Oh, you've been here a little while. Yeah. What was the transition like? I had a lot less free time at night because I was drawing comics like it was my job. Like I wanted to put some books out and have them out in time to do a show in Portland. Line work? Uh, no, my friend puts that on. Line work did not yet exist. Uh, line work is filling the vacuum of a show called Stumptown that no longer exists. Yeah, I just went to line work. It was super fun. Oh, very cool. Do you know Zach Soto? Nope. He's one of the guys who puts it on. He's a friend of okay. mine. Yeah, Andy McMillan told me it was happening, and so I just went to it. Yeah. Uh, who does XOXO? Yeah, there's something to be said for like a uh, curated comic fest. So I feel like there's always like some of the same stuff at Alternative Press Expo. You'd get some good things, but there was always like this weird guy who had a comic about daisies by the front door. I'm like, nobody wants that, man. Uh, so you get like, I, I think, a uh, better crowd when you sort of curate who's going to be at the show. It was really interesting. Yeah. Well, they do like a lot of experimental art and like some some mm-hmm. of the people involved with that used to have a gallery too. I think the gallery still exists, but I think different people are involved like Pony Club art. or something. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because they have like music and stuff now too, right? Not the day I was there. No. Okay. They might have done like talks with that stuff. Okay. But yeah, in like the, the main room or whatever, it's just a bunch of like uh, print stuff mainly. Very cool. Well, I don't think we said what, what kind of comics were you doing? Um, I was doing some like autobiographical comics, but not like serious ones. Just like San Francisco compared to Cleveland is like a pretty weird place and a lot of really weird stuff would happen to you. So just be like comics about that. But then I started doing some like fictitious ones. So I did one that was about like drag queens and aliens. And uh, the one I was telling you about earlier that involves my friend eating some like bad Vietnamese food that turns her into a giant uh, and that. And then um, I don't know where the idea for weird toys came from. I just like had some ideas and started making some of that junk. 
Uh, what were some of the experiences you had in San Francisco versus Ohio? Uh, well, one was this thing called the Jejun Institute. There's actually a movie about it that was on Netflix called The Institute. And it's like, um, it doesn't exist anymore, but imagine the movie being John Malkovich crossed with a scavenger hunt in San Francisco. And it was really, really bizarre. And you don't know when you're doing it, if it's like a cult or somebody's weird art project. And it was broken into episodes and each episode was focused on a different part of the city. And it Turned out it was somebody's kooky art project, but it was like the idea was there was this like fictitious narrative layer, like almost like augmented reality, like on top of the real world. And you would become very immersed in your environment and like learn about things that you would commonly overlook. So you would have to like intensely scrutinize like parts of your neighborhood or something that you had never paid attention to before, all while sort of like following these clues. So you'd have to like go into this weird uh, building in the financial district and like ask for the doctor and you'd go in and do this like induction and there's all these crazy machines with lights and stuff on them and this like kooky like culty guy telling you you're going on some mission and you get this like puzzle card and then the next thing you know you're like off on this weird adventure going to all these different places in Chinatown and like your first instruction is to escape from the building undetected. And I did a comic about that, and then the people who did it found me. Uh, so I got to have lunch with one of them because I was like, can I please just ask you a thousand questions yeah, about holy this? Sh- why? How? Yeah. When? Uh, well, I think the guy who did it, um, I think he like had inherited a lot of money or something, and this was his weird art project. But he enlisted all these other people, and they call themselves transmedia designers. And she would do a lot of stuff with museums. Like she did some crazy thing with like theremins at the Exploratorium. But I think she's a Disney Imagineer now. Theremins were always like the coolest, weirdest instrument. Like, oh, yeah. I can't believe that exists. Um, what are theremins? I'm, this is the most I've ever just had to ask. Oh, it's like exp- a weird instrument that you like wave your hands over and it plays almost like ghost sounds. There's two antennas, one controls pitch and the other controls volume. It's the thing that made the Star Trek uh, theme song. That's the most popular, like, use of one. How does the Star Trek theme song sound? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you teach me about the world. There's like a Simpsons gag about it too, where Homer's like, there's a ghost in the attic and it's playing my theremin. Just like any time <laughs> in a cartoon yeah. you've heard ghost yep. noises, it's probably a theremin. Oh my God. Like, so amazing. All right. So you got to meet with the people that put this thing on. Yeah. And they later, um, they had like a super secret screening of the movie about the thing. And they like called me up and were like, do you want to go to this? And it's in this place called like, I think Oddball Films. Have you ever been there in the mission? No. Mm-hmm. They um, they have like a weird little theater that they've put together out of uh, what looks like dumpstered theater parts, but they have some huge film archive and they supply a lot of like, just if you have like a weird random clip of an old movie or something in your movie, they have it. And they supplied um, for the Liberace movie on HBO, they supplied all of like the 70s porn and stuff that they would like show on the TVs and stuff. They're like oddly specific in licensing to have some <laughs> crazy archive. And the movie, the best part about the movie, I don't want to give too much away in case people want to watch it, is like the movie is also kind of a troll in and of itself. Like you think you're going to get this very straightforward like explanation of how this thing was made. And like you don't know what parts of the movie are real and what aren't. It was just as much of like a as uh, the the game itself. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I made a comic about that. Got it. Yeah. You don't have those in Ohio. No. <laughs> I feel like there's so much interesting stuff here that like I've never heard about, and you wouldn't hear about unless you know the right people. Yeah. There's a lot of weird stuff, and like this doesn't exist anymore. 
either because they um it got too big it was like out of control for them because they're like you know we rented this space in this office building and suddenly we have all these people coming in and playing this game and other people are trying to work and it's like disneyland in there and like we just couldn't control it anymore (laughs) it's like a fuck my brain just farted (laughs) never mind it's gonna say like a conveyor belt of people coming through like all right now you have to escape without getting detected. all right now you next <laughs> yeah and like the very end of the first episode you have this like key and you're wandering through this office and you're taken to what's kind of like a bank vault and there's all these lockers and you have to open one locker and there's a stool on a chain inside and you pull it out and there's a key to another locker and the locker opens and there's just this little pinhole and you look inside and there's like just this crazy like rotating weird art thing inside of it. And that's the point at which I was like, not a cult, somebody's weird art project. Interesting. Uh, have you ever done an escape room? Um, no, because the people who always have asked me to do those are terrible and I wouldn't want to be trapped in a room with them. Uh, we did an offsite. Oh, of course. Escape room. This is why I plan all the offsites for my team so I don't ever have to do anything like that. <laughs> it was actually kind of fun. Oh, I, you had a good time? Yeah, I I, th- I kind of went into it like, uh, I don't know about this one. It was actually super fun. But anyways, that's what that reminded me of. It's like you're in this situation. Yeah. You have to just like fucking figure it out. And like some things are a little more obvious than others. But then. Yeah, it is like that. And in some places, like you don't know if you're trespassing or not. Because there's <laughs> one where you go into the Empress of China building and you're wandering through these like corridors and you go out on the balcony and you're like, am I even supposed to be here? But the craziest part was um, so like you'd finish one and then you could like move on to the next, but they could kind of operate independently. It's just it was better if you did them in order because then you would like sort of know the narrative or whatever. But as I came home from that, I found a clue for the second episode spray painted on the sidewalk in front of my house and it like broke my brain. And I'd walked over it a million times going to work over the course of that year and never paid any attention to it. And then it was like right there. And I think that's kind of the point of the game. Jeez, man. I That's unbelievable. I heard of something similar. There, I think someone tried to reboot that in the uh, recent years. Oh, the Secret Society? That one. I did that too, yeah. How do you find out about those? Well, shit? they invite you. You have to be invited to that one. You, oh. get, you get a card. What? Yeah. How did they find you to invite you? Oh, because um, the people had seen my comic. And so since I was like a fan, they like brought me, you get this weird card that says like, tell no one. Or no, it says um, absolute discretion. <laughs> Amazing. I should have brought it. They, they shut it down not long after because they think it was like, it was only ever intended to be a limited thing. So I'm sure they'll do other stuff because this guy is. Um, he has time. Yeah. Uh, he has time. And I think uh, just a lot of spirit. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. Yeah. All right. He's a cool dude. So let's get back. Uh, you're at Hotwire. Yeah. Uh, so I was working at Hotwire, doing all their mobile stuff. It was kind of fun to work downtown because they're right across from the Transamerica Pyramid. So um, I don't know if you play Cards Against Humanity, but like commuting on the train, I felt very much like that card that's like, I'm a busy adult with important things to do, you know, going to my like downtown job in the skyscrapers. But I liked that it was like kind of on the border of Chinatown and North Beach and all of that. Mm-hmm. So I could just kind of walk around and absorb the city. And so I worked there for a year. And then once um, my year was up, uh, where I didn't have to like repay my relocation benefit, then I decided I wanted to move on. Um, which like Hotwire is an okay place to work, but I had wanted to work on something that was the product, and Hotwire wasn't the product. And also, I was kind of learning that I didn't like deceiving people, and insurance felt really deceptive. Like they had a lot of like dark patterns, and it was really in their best interest for people to not understand how it worked. And Hotwire, while well intended, their whole business model is called opaque. And what it is is they sell unsold hotel inventory, but they don't tell you what the hotel is because the hotel doesn't want like their brand tarnished. And like you get a pretty good 
deal this way and they give you enough information to make a good choice. Like, you know, you're not going to a stabby neighborhood. You know what the amenities are. And like, if you do some research, you can usually even figure out who the hotel is. But people still didn't quite get that that's what the value proposition was. So they often felt like they were being tricked. They're like, why aren't you telling me the hotel name? I mean, they sold other hotels for like the regular rate, just like Hayek did um, and Expedia. But yeah, people kind of didn't get that. So I wanted to go work on like an actual product. So I started like shopping around at different startups and there was one in Cupertino that I did not want to work for. Um, so when they made me an offer, uh, I quoted them like an absurdly high amount of money in the hopes that they would go away. And they like added on to it. Holy so shit. I was like, I guess I do have a price because you just named it. Uh, so for like not quite a year, I drove down to Cupertino and I actually brought out. Um, you sold out. I did. Oh, I absolutely did. <laughs> um, but you know, San Francisco is an expensive place. And it's I thought, not too, untrue. well, going from working at a bunch of big companies to a small startup, I was going to have autonomy. And I'm like, oh, I can choose the team that I want. I'm going to have a lot of say in the product. I'm going to make this thing look like how I want. And I had been working at places, too, that there was like this disconnect between UX design and visual design. Like you'd make your wireframe and somebody would slap a coat of paint on it and then somebody else would build it. And all this stuff would slip through the cracks like every step of the way. And it would just get changed. And like you didn't really have a lot of ownership of it. So I thought... You know, at a smaller company, that would be pretty different. And I brought out, um, I think he's been on your show, Morgan Knudsen. Yeah. I brought him out to work with me on that. He knows every single designer he, he in the world. He hired a lot of them out here. Yeah. Yeah, he does. So I brought him out here. Uh, but, you know, it was a terrible startup. So he was still talking to Google. So he didn't stay there for very long. But he did a lot of really good work while he was there. Um, we had a lot of barbecue together. And yeah, it was like a news start. It was kind of like Netflix for news. Like you would pay like one subscription price and get a bunch of premium news. Like, uh, I think we had what? Did we have Wall Street Journal? It was funded by New York Times and Washington Post and USA Today. So you get like all that kind of stuff. And then we later added magazine subscriptions like National Geographic. So it was kind of a cool idea, but the execution was bad. And like I knew it was time for me to go when the CEO asked me to make um, the UI of the app look like the Chrome in his Audi. I was just like, what? What? Because he thought that looked like really classy. Dude, the Chrome trim is like the lowest end model. You got to go for the black version. (laughs) It's all blacked out. That's the trick. He was really into Iron Man. Man too like they had like a superhero theme thing going on in there so we had all these Tony Stark posters and he thought about bringing in the people that made the like fake UI and Iron Man and I'm like G-Monk? I'm like you know that your demographic is 50 year old people how are they ever <laughs> going to figure this out if you make this look like the future you know what was it what was the app can you say it oh it was like- called Ongo like I don't think anybody ever had it except for like a handful of old people what's the new thing now it's I just like- left a news app and like that's kind of how it felt well, at the time, Flipboard was coming out, and I'm like, this is everything we should be, and we're not, you know, because Flipboard was, like, beautiful. I don't think at the time Flipboard had paid content. I don't know if they have that now, but it was just a really nice reading experience. And, like, Ongo was trying to say, like, well, one, our value prop is you only pay one person for a lot of news, but also that this reading experience is going to be a lot nicer than, like, the native websites for these publishers. And, like, it just wasn't. And then you could, like, look at something like Flipboard, and that was actually, like, really 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 great experience and like the first version of flipboard i haven't kept up with with them lately but me neither yeah they had some really nice stuff for a while so yeah i didn't want to do the commute down there anymore because i was driving every day and that was long so i left oh how we go in circles all right so what did you do after the then i went to that company awesome the one i was telling you about and they did um yeah social media analytics okay how did you end up there I think that they just like I saw an ad for them or something and they needed a designer and I went and interviewed with them while I was on my like Christmas break because the other startup would shut down during Christmas and I was 
like, wow, you're two blocks away from my house. That's pretty great. But I really liked the people there. And it was a bunch of gay dudes at the time. And I was like, oh, it'd be kind of fun to work with other gay people. Uh-huh. Um, and it was just mostly people my age. Like my other startup wasn't really the startup-y experience I had hoped for. And I think it was because it was a lot of ex-eBay people. Um, so they were like older sort of business people and they ran this startup very much like you would eBay. So it didn't really feel like what I was looking for. Um, so I wanted to go to something a little different. And yeah, like I think our personalities clicked and they needed somebody to do some data visualization. And I wanted to get back into that because um, it was just a space I thought was interesting. And, you know, the like Feltron annual reports were coming out and like those were super cool. I just um, met him. He's so awesome. Oh, I've never I've never met him, but his work is awesome. Name dropped. Yeah. Uh I had like a print version at my desk that I would like keep. That was really cool. But um and Do you had, his book? Oh yeah. Photo I, is. I had no, I didn't have the book yet because I don't think that was out. I had like one year. No, I, I just meant like now. Oh no. He put out a new book. Uh, I did not know that. Photo is. I used his Real app. Book. He had datum because that was the app he made for himself yeah. to like record all that stuff. He made datum and then he made reporter. And I used yeah. reporter for a long time. I used datum and I'm like, this will be useful someday. And then psh, <laughs> I never did it. You have <laughs> That's to do something I feel about with it. Every tracking app, like even this yeah. freaking Apple Watch I'm wearing. Like, oh, I use the you're hell out of my a, Fitbit. But, but for fitness. But, Okay, do you, you actually use it? Yeah, I use it okay. for my training because, okay. um, like, I want the heart rate. And it also uh, tracks, like, your rest so it knows your actual recovery rate. Okay. Yeah. So for training, it's really, really great. Um, okay. I do not have any desire to have a smartwatch. And I actually was on NPR's uh, Marketplace last year. They were interviewing me about design for these things, and I was like, I've never designed for a wearable. I'm not at all qualified. And they're like, we just need somebody now. And I'm like, okay. And so they edited down this 10 minute interview to just me talking about how the first time I accidentally got a text notification on this, I screamed. (laughs) Wow. So they missed the point. Uh, No, I think that was probably just the only useful thing they got for me because they talked (laughs) to some other people too. So I was really like not qualified for that. I just think of like all the steps that are being tracked and I'm like, Ah, it's a big number, but I don't know what it means. Oh, for me, um, I use it to track hikes and I use it to track runs. So like seeing my pace change over time or like knowing like, oh, I felt like shit when I did this run, but my heart rate was a lot lower. So I'm actually in like much better shape. That's really useful. And I'll use it too just to know like how hard am I working? Oh, my heart rate is like way, way up. I'm going to like break for 20 seconds now before I move on to the next thing. Got it. So it's good for that. Okay, cool. But I don't, yeah, I don't care about steps. Um, and then at some point you decided you wanted to commute again. <laughs> You're like, I uh, miss, I miss uh, <laughs> the 101. Yeah. Well, actually, I was taking 280 to get to Ongo because they were in Cupertino. Yeah, dude, Cupertino. Come on, dude. They were one block <laughs> away that, from is Apple. Is that really much better? <laughs> well, at the time, you know, it only took 45 minutes to commute down there. Now it's twice as long because there's so much more traffic. But uh, the commute was prettier on 280 because you like drive through the mountains. And they were one block away from Apple, which was really funny because you were right where like the little maps icon uh-huh. was. And also, hilariously, I had AT&T at the time because for a long time they were like the only uh, carrier with iPhones and AT&T didn't work there. <laughs> so like the first carrier that Apple picks for their phone does not work, work where Apple campus. is. Wow. Yeah. Maybe it worked only in their HQ, but like yeah, one block over. We need one antenna in the middle of our building, please. Yeah. Um, no, so my startup, it kind of pivoted. We, we started doing stuff for people to like build features on, and then we were moving more towards marketers. And it was one of those things like startups are often in that position where it's like, oh, You've pivoted. Now you're going to run out of money. So you either have to raise more money or you have to sell your company. So it's kind of like the writing was maybe on the wall. I was hoping that we were going to, you know, sell and continue. But I started interviewing with other places. 
well, actually, first Facebook had reached out to me. Yeah, I was I was talking to some other places, and Facebook reached out to me, and then Awesome got sold, and they didn't need anybody who you know wasn't keeping the servers up. So I had some time on my hands, uh, and just kind of interviewed with different places for a while, which I kind of wish I hadn't done because uh, then. Well, I'm from the Midwest, and so, you know, I wasn't used to not having a job. I was more used to, like, in my youth having, like, two jobs or something. So I was like, I've got to interview. I need to find a job right away. Even though, like, financially I've been planning to, like, not work. You know, I was, like, totally prepared for that situation. And they, like, give you severance and stuff. They, like, buy you out of the company or whatever. And, yeah, I was interviewing like it was my job and interviewing with, like, all these really terrible companies. Some were good, but some were just, like, there's no fit there whatsoever. And I'm like, why am I doing this, you know? Because... Well, you're designers, you know how in demand designers are, like you'll get, you know, a dozen messages a day from different recruiters. So you just kind of have to talk to everybody until you find something interesting. Uh, I did one interview from the beach. (laughs) They heard like some waves in the background and they were like, is now a good time to talk? I was like, now's a great time. This is my office. (laughs) I'm free. I'm free forever. (laughs) Buy me away from this. I dare you. But yeah, so I was talking to Facebook and I was kind of hoping that that was where I was going to wind up just because... um, I wanted some more stability, you know, after doing the startup thing of will we raise money? Won't we raise money? We're going to pivot. I just wanted to be somewhere that kind of knew at least what they were doing for the next six months. And I would be around other designers again because I was like the only designer there. And, you know, I worked with some really good engineers, but um, yeah, I just wanted to like learn from some other people too. Which sounds like you've been in that boat before too. Yeah. Yeah. And Facebook's, I think, a great place to do that. There's a lot of people there now. Yeah. Certainly fewer when you joined. <laughs> yeah. It was a weird time in my life, though, because right when that happened, I'm like, well, at least I still have my cool rent control apartment in the mission and like my friends. And then my best friends moved away and my girlfriend broke up with me and my landlady was like, I'm selling the house. You have to move. So I was just like, oh, everything is terrible right now, but Whoa. I can only go up from here. Uh, so, yeah, like once I found a new apartment, I like right at the same time, I like locked things down with Facebook and I'm like, okay, I'll see you in a few months. So my stuff was still in boxes. And like the day I moved into my place, I called a travel agent. I'm like, put me on an island with no internet. And so I went to Bora Bora for like a month and I lived in a little uh, bungalow like over the water and wrote a shark and fed fish and read a lot of books. You wrote a shark? I did. What kind of shark? Uh, It was a lemon shark. Not a great white? No, I wish. (laughs) Uh, That's kind of my dream. I would love to. No, it was like a very scary looking but harmless shark. That's awesome. Yeah. Bora Bora is a pretty cool place. Why did you want to disconnect that badly? Um, Because I hadn't taken a vacation in my adult life. It's like every time I would leave a job, I would just wind up with vacation pay like cashed out. The closest thing I had taken to a vacation was... um, when I was working at Progressive, I went and visited like my ex at the time, her family, and that was terrible because I was just like watching her and her family fight. So that's not really a vacation. And I took uh, five days off to drive across the country and move out here. Not vacation. No, it was a lot of driving. Uh, I mean, it was fun, but yeah, definitely not vacation. Um, so I was like, I need just some time off. Do you still like to get away? Is that like a thing for you now? Yeah. Once I did that, I was like, why have I not been traveling all of this time? So yeah, then I started just traveling all the time as much as I could. What does it do for you? I feel like it gives me perspective. Um, I like being away from tech stuff. I like sort of the anonymity that you have when you travel too. Like that can be pretty cool. And I don't know. I just like seeing other things. It makes me feel kind of insignificant. I'm like, oh, my problems don't really matter. The world's like a really big place, you know? And I just, I also like seeing the outdoors. Uh huh. I think the perspective of knowing that there's so much more out there is incredibly valuable. Yeah. I feel like that when I do like mountainy stuff, I'm like, oh, I'm like this big and these mountains are going to be here. They've been here for like thousands of years and they'll be here for thousands of years after I'm gone. And like, 
I am meaningless in the grand scheme of things. And somehow that's actually comforting. I feel like that when I go home and Where's hang home? out uh, to Colorado. Colorado. But oh, like, yeah. He lives in the mountains. Well, okay. living in the mountains, but like hanging out with people that don't really care about tech. And it's like, yeah. if you ask them, so you're not what's the latest Apple rumor? It's like, I don't fucking know. But like you ask anyone here, it's like, oh, the iPhone 7 supposedly going to have like less lines on it yeah (laughs) it can be kind of exhausting the worst is like when you're like out hiking and then you overhear people talking about tech like some guy was talking about vesting cliff somewhere i was and i was like i'm gonna push you off cliff (laughs) i came here to escape sir i'm trying to hike when i was in hong kong i ran into like two dudes at the bar that were like working on their startup at a laptop from san francisco i was just like i flew halfway around the world to escape this and there was a santa con going on at the same time too i was <laughs> so like you're, are you kidding me you were in you're san, francisco. san francisco yeah <laughs> yeah yeah oh uh, crazy it was very san francisco too because even like the landscape there it's like sort of dense city not that yeah. san francisco is that condensed. dense but like on the water with like a lot of hills and stuff mm-hmm. and fog or pollution um, they have a pretty big problem there right not as much there when I was in Shanghai. It's really bad. And in Korea, all of like southern China's smog blows down there. And right. they were having some kind of drought in Mongolia that was causing like dust storms. So all their dust was blowing to Korea. And when I got there, I landed um, like the sky was just brown. And then I like flew back through that way to go home. Um, and it like completely cleared up like a week later. It was kind mm. of crazy. So you ended up at Facebook. I did. And how long have you been there now? Two years, a little over. It's not the longest you've been at a place then. No, I mean, it's getting there. Getting close. Yeah, like I think two and a half is the longest I ever stayed anywhere. How's it been? Good. Um, I mean, I, like, I hate my current job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Terrible. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> no one's listening, right? Yeah. Uh, no, Blink I like twice. I like that you can change stuff because, uh, you know, it seems like I get bored after a year. I want to try new things and follow my interests. And at Facebook, people kind of move around a lot and work on different things. Right. What are you working on? So it's kind of a mouthful. It's called ads transparency and control, but it's how people control their ads or hide them um, or decide how their information is used in relationship to ads. Is that ads colon transparency and control? No, just ads transparency ampersand control. We need like a code name or something. You just call it cat. Ads transparency and control. At k- That's less yeah. fun. Yeah, it is, it <laughs> is a lot cat. less fun. Yeah, we're part of the, it's like a delivery team, and that team has changed names about 10,000 times. Oh, I have a question for you. How many times have you changed desks since being at Facebook? Once. Only once? Only once. I uh, keep a tally now. I'm on number 15. You're kidding. Yeah. That's exhausting. They move people around a lot. Pretty much every time I've gone on a research trip to my desk gets moved. (laughs) You come back. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Where's my stapler? Uh, (laughs) I leave everything in boxes, just like ready to go. I have giant googly eyes on the back of my monitor, too, so that once they move me, I can like very easily locate my monitor again. You know. Yeah. Is there anything in particular you've been thinking about lately? (laughs) Uh, We already talked about outside, so yeah. Yeah, transitional states in design, which I guess is less like about app transitions, but like humans in transition, because everybody multitasks. I feel like, I don't know, this is kind of different than what you were saying earlier, but I feel like with with social media, people do know that you don't have somebody's full attention, that you're like not necessarily there to like accomplish a task, um, unless you like have a video you really want to share or something. It's not like you're like, I need to check my bank balance or I'm going to buy a shirt today. But there are all these apps that you sort of have running in the background because they've become such a part of our lives, but they assume that you're using them with your full attention. So like, for example, whenever I'm driving, I have Google Maps going, even if I'm going someplace I've gone a million times before because 
there might be traffic and I want like the best route. But I'm also like listening to an audiobook because it takes forever to get anywhere in the bay with like all the traffic and stuff. And so I'll have you know, the maps application interrupt me about 12 different times just to say, like, stay in this lane. The thing about that is it's on a timer. And so, like, the Google Maps ones, you know, like, the oh, little really? things will come up and they'll have a bar that's timing down. Oh, yeah. And sometimes the thing is, like, there's a better route. Do you want to take the faster route? And if you don't look at your phone within yeah. 15 seconds or something. But it's always, like, three minutes. It goes away. To save three minutes, we'll send you on like a crazy chase through San Francisco where you're going to make like a series of left turns across like oncoming traffic. Yeah. Like usually it's it's terrible. Like I would rather have a like simpler route than the one that saves me two minutes, right? Like if it's like anything under 10 minutes, like I don't care. I'm just going to go the way that I always go because I don't want the stress of like, oh, did I turn in the right place? Because like San Francisco is kind of crazy to drive in. There's a lot of one-way streets and it like loops me through Twin Peaks sure, where there's sure. a lot of crazy stuff a lot. Um, it doesn't really give you any control over that and it is assumes that you're like paying very close attention and it's a tiny like dismiss button too to get rid of that and also to get rid of like the you're on the best route but there's like 10 minutes of extra traffic and it just keeps coming up you're like i don't care i just want to listen to my book but you keep interrupting it so how do we as designers think about that then the the context include mute buttons (laughs) (laughs) like we're designing products for people that are doing other things while they use our product yeah i mean i think you have to thoughtfully create some like thresholds around feedback he's like we sort of assume as designers that like feedback loops are always positive that like we want to give you as much information as possible about what's going on so you can make choice but at a certain point we have to be a little bit more editorial like maybe there's like a more passive driving mode versus like i'm on a road trip i'm going to stay on the highway most of the time so like don't really interrupt me unless something major happens or like i'm going someplace i always go you know where i drive because i have this on all the time like only talk to me if it's really important and i need to know that there's like an accident and I have to seriously reroute my trip. So a lot of what you're talking about is not necessarily about the UI, but it's just about having a better understanding of what I'm doing as the the user. Yeah, well, that's I think how we so. think about it, right? Yeah. Just chill, Google. Just relax. <laughs> it's usually me screaming, shut up, shut up, shut up, <laughs> over and over and over again. Especially as I'm like trying to get out of the apart or the parking lot in my apartment complex. It's like, go west. Be- <laughs> no, I'm getting out of the fucking garage. I'm like, I don't know which way west is. There was like a tweet that was going around, I don't know who it was, but he's like, West? I don't know which way west is, Google. I'm not a sea captain. <laughs> <laughs> Port. It's like if I knew, I wouldn't be asking you. Uh-huh. Uh, my car doesn't have a compass <laughs> in it. But yeah, like you're doing the loop just to get out of your parking lot. And it's like rerouting rerouting and i'm like oh just give me a minute are there any apps doing good jobs of this kind of thing i don't like the only app i can think of that is even considering this is Waze, which is funny because it's owned by google now and it's mostly like to prevent you from doing stuff it's like you can't interact with the Waze interface while you're driving because it knows you're moving and it's like you're driving now you can't do anything which is kind of funny because like one of the earlier versions of Waze had some notion of like gamification in it and yeah. i got this like terrible ding while i was driving down um 19th avenue to the bridge and i was like oh is there like an accident is there like a cop car up front because that it was like the same yeah. or similar sound and it was it was giving me a badge I had like won something. I was like, I really don't need this one. You've driving. driven 10 miles with Waze. Congratulations, yeah. you get a point. It's kind of like when you're listening Compass, to music. you recognized West. <laughs> <laughs> You've ever been listening to music in the car and like they have like a police siren noise in the track or something? That oh, should I be illegal. so much. Yeah. And you're like, ah. Uh, it's kind of like that. But yeah, I can't think of anybody that's really doing anything with that. I'm sure there are and I just like don't use enough apps, but maybe everybody just assumes they have your full attention. I feel like part of an in that theme of thinking as designers comes also like a little bit moving ourselves away from the ui and like what the ideal use case is and like 
how we expect people to flow through it when we don't even, even yeah. like bringing people into labs is quite misinformed because it's not really how someone's going to use your app. Like they're yeah. staring straight down at it for 45 minutes with cameras on them, right? Yeah, it's not ethnographic research. It's not like you're going, you're, you're not going with somebody on their journey to drive to work every day. So what we really need is chips in people's heads. <laughs> See, that's what that data. Well, just to I'm like observe about. them, right? Like even as I was working on ad software, like we would go to where the agencies were and like, sit with them all day and just see like what's your job what are you doing and like you'd observe a lot of interesting stuff you'd see like where sort of all the breakpoints in your app world where somebody would like get up and go talk to somebody else um, when they should have been doing it within the app it's just stuff that you don't see until you do it and you sort of like you have all these assumptions and you assume everything's going to go right and then you bring somebody into a lab and you're like here's my script ah you follow the script everything's working but what you don't think about is what happens when somebody is going off the script um, is something going to go horribly wrong uh, and is the app going to like completely fail because we haven't planned for any of this like contingency so what's the better way to design for that is it is there is it user research is it just yeah anecdotes over time probably both right like you have to collect a lot of information about how people use your app so some of it can just be like data collection but i think also trying to find different kinds of people that are using your stuff and actually going and watching them in their real environment interact with it Mm. and like completing the tasks that they would do because like you when you design software like you're usually designing it for like a specific mental model or task set right but like uh, so we use Outlook at right or work, right? Like how many different hacks do you have to get around Outlook being janky? Like you have different little things in your workflow that probably aren't what Outlook planned for you to do. And so they're never going to like design to ease that pain for you because they just assume that you're using it exactly how they intended. I I don't know how they intend people to use Outlook. <laughs> I've, I've come to use one button and that's archive. That's yeah. It's the only thing I click. Yeah. I archived like a year's worth of stuff yesterday and it was so liberating. I was just thinking of uh, the Netflix interstitial that's like, are you still watching? It's like, so that's weird. irritating. It's I'm like, like, yes, it makes I'm binge you, watching. It, it makes you feel bad about yourself. Don't shame it's me. Like, <laughs> all right, fine, Netflix, I'll turn it off. I know. Well, I get the concept of like, should we stop playing this because you're asleep now? But don't fucking stop it. Like, <laughs> put that in the corner or something. What do you think about the, I don't know if it's moral, but. Like, should people watch that long of an extended amount of television and do the designers at Netflix have a responsibility to interrupt that? Oh, that's like a hard line. Yes and no. Like personal responsibility. <laughs> that's not an answer. No, like- yes. Yes. Uh, it's fine for people to watch that long of TV. No, they, should, not- they don't have a moral duty. Well, there's like design for well-being, right? Like you go on, I don't know, Twitter or anything and you like, you look at the news and lately it's pretty terrible. Maybe it's always been terrible. I don't know. And after a while, like you're inundated with all this really horrible imagery and like you start to not feel very good. But that's also the news and you're sort of like self-selecting to see that stuff by who you follow and who you choose like not to mute or unfollow. Uh, but do the people who make that stuff like have an obligation to help protect you from it? Um, even if you don't know that that's what you want. Like, I don't know. Like when can software make choices for you? People seem to not like it when software presumes to know them better than they know themselves. It can go both ways too. I think of like when bad things are happening, mm-hmm. there's probably more activity on Twitter, which is good for Twitter metrics and good for Twitter ad revenue. Yeah. And well, like, they take pride in like the Arab Spring stuff, right? Like, because people were using it to disclose information about what was happening. Yeah, I mean, it can be good and bad, right? Yeah. But at the end of the day, like, I would be curious how they think of it. And this, I guess, applies to any big company like that is like, when bad things happen, your metrics look very, very good. Yeah, nobody really measures um, like emotional intensity. 
right? Like you look for like maybe like a positive metric that's going up and to the right, but you're not asking the people that wasn't a positive experience for like just how bad was this? Like what's the counter metric? Yeah. Um, and like, I don't think anybody has a good way to measure that. But I met with this guy. He came in and did a workshop uh, with us. That He's like a professor, I think, at University of Sydney, maybe. His name is Rafa Calvo. And he, with another guy whose name I sadly can't remember, wrote a book called Positive Computing. Um, and it's about trying to design software more for emotional well-being. And more importantly, like trying to find ways that you can actually measure that. It's kind of like the Tristan Harris guy who came and spoke at Facebook about like design ethics at Google. He was trying to find ways to like measure, I forget what he called it, but basically positivity in software. Or, like, like what are they suggesting? They all have these like sort of weird scales that have lots of surveys. I think surveys are kind of the best thing we have right now. Um, or like seemed, asking people a question. Seems, uh, maybe Bra- surveys are. implants, guys. Well, right. It's brain skewed. Implants. Like who's going to answer that, right? The person who's going to answer that feels more invested in the outcome than somebody who like is just passively experiencing something. Right. So what do they say about positive computing and designing for emotion and things like that? I just think it's more about being smarter about the ways that people use software and, you know, not assuming that they're always in a good emotional state. Because, like, you assume somebody is neutral as they're using your software. But even with insurance, we saw, like, when do you log into your insurance app? when you're going to pay your bill and when you need to make a claim about your policy. So you might be like really shaken up at the scene of an accident, trying to get your proof of information to give it to a police officer, which could be like a stressful interaction for you. Maybe you were like at fault and you're trying to figure out if there's going to be like legal repercussions. And like, you can't remember like your whatever weird password combination, like rules there were to like get into this thing. And like, we're just assuming like, Oh, great to see you today. Like you're really happy to come in here and experience the wild, wild world of insurance. A cute little illustration with an upsell to buy more shit. Yeah, they at Progressive, they have little stroke icons now. So I'm like, oh, you're moving into the, the 2010s now with your, your visual aesthetic. How precious. But yeah, like we always just assume that people are in a neutral state when like they could be going through like deep trauma when they're going online. And sometimes I think it's even easier with something like a game or even social media to assume that when people are going through something terrible, they're not going to be there. But like, I don't know, something like Facebook, that's where people share all of their news or that might be like their escape from whatever's going on in their life. Yeah. And man, I'm excited and eager to see like if there's better solutions to this. Yeah, I think- What are the input mechanisms to tell computers like, this is harmful. This is harmful It at this moment or based on the things I'm doing elsewhere, right? Yeah, it's sort of like a temporal, right? Because something might be harmful right now, but it might not be harmful later. Like the first year or the first Mother's Day after my mom died, I was working in American Greetings, so greeting card company. I had a dozen different test accounts, so I was just inundated with Mother's Day promotions and like I didn't really expect to feel anything but like I totally did I like ran into a conference room and cried uh, when that happened and like nobody was really like expecting that outcome when they're making a Mother's Day email because they're like ah my open rates were up and to the right and some like e-greetings happened and it's not like there's some kind of filter in like MailChimp or any email software that's uh, like you know turn off stuff about moms but you know maybe there should be (laughs) <laughs> I want no more mom things. Yeah, no more about this kind of thing. We're kind of bad at classifying things on the internet sometimes. And you have to know how to classify things as like a grouping uh, for people to be able to like opt out of them, right? But I'm not sure. I, I don't disagree, but I'm wondering if like opt out is also the right mechanism. Like, Oh, yeah. Like you're already triggered at that point, yeah. right? Like so many experiences, like you can't take any action until you've already like had the bad thing happen to you. Right. I feel like this would be a great like, 
single sign-on services. Like you have one login and it tracks like, oh, hey. How you're feeling. Yeah. <laughs> like. What's your emotional Facebook state today? Well, even like, uh, hey, my mom died. Just turn off all that stuff on all of my services or whatever. Right? Yeah. Like, filter everything yep. about moms. Scrub the internet. There's some people that would argue too that you shouldn't sanitize things. And actually, tangential research I was doing on something else, I was talking to some people about some experts around like trauma. And if you have like experienced PTSD, sometimes it is good to be exposed to some of these things to sort of like reintegrate you into some like normalcy later on. But it's like software can't make that choice for you to like give you that stuff. And like you might not be there yet you might not quite be ready so it's also like you don't know when something is bad if like just not showing it is the right thing to do like you have to leave that control in people's hands i'm also just a bit cynical like i feel like that will be the the pull and push of that is if you give people the ability to tell computers what how they're feeling or what they're thinking or have that be passive somehow like the opportunity for that to be abused Oh, is like, also really high. Like, you'll get ads for oh, like this, funerals or something? This, no, like this person's sad. Here's a product that will make you happy. Yeah. Oh, you're happy? Here's a vacation that costs a lot of money or something. Like, I feel like there's ways to abuse a person's emotional state. Yeah, abuse is relative too. <laughs> right. Some people might be into that and some people might feel really manipulated by it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird when you uh, are trying to influence someone's emotions either negatively or positively, especially if they haven't explicitly consented to that manipulation. This is stuff you're thinking about now with the ads transparency, right? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I mean, not manipulation per se, but... No, but like yeah. giving people control to, to see what they want to see. Yeah, uh, to see, you know, what they what they care about um, and not see things they don't. What's been the hardest part of that? Well, I think the hardest part is maybe like an engineering problem. Like you have to really know what all of the ads are to be able to give control over them. And like, that's sort of up to an advertiser, right? They can put anything they want in the creative. Like it could be a picture of a dog, but be an ad about cat stuff. Uh, so like how, from like an engineering perspective, do you like reconcile those things to give somebody control to say like no dogs or yes, cats? Deep learning. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we're actually over time by uh, 10 minutes or so. Oops. We always like to ask at the end, what keeps you up at night? Insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The, the, two, the two expected answers are insomnia and kids. Oh, no kids. Um, lately, it's been Netflix binging on The Good Wife, which is don't tell anybody. <laughs> All right. Well, we, won't, you just did. we won't tell anybody. Shameful. Another designer got me hooked on it, though. What metaphorically keeps you up at night? Metaphorically. I'm trying to figure out how we can spend more time in the mountains. Uh, getting away from tech? I don't know. Or finding a way to like marry those two things. But then maybe once uh, getting away from things becomes a job, it loses its appeal. I'm not sure. I've got an app you should check out. Oh, yeah? It's called Wander. Yeah. Have you heard of it? No. It sounds familiar, but no. Our friend Justin Graham worked on it. Okay. Uh, GoWander.co. Yeah. Okay. It's like tracking hikes and if you take photos during the hike it'll like oh put the photo on a map where you took that photo and they'll like show you your steps and elevation all that kind of stuff oh yeah but like super on top relevant. of a map with photos and you can add a journal to it and things like that oh that's cool. awesome cool <laughs> you tell him your emotional state and how you feel about mountains and he advertises to you <laughs> just <laughs> like the rest everything. of the internet <laughs> right uh, this episode is sponsored by wander.co <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for taking the time to thanks for having me that was 152. Thank you so much to Beth for coming and hanging out with us and talking about crazy 
stuff like experiential scavenger hunt things. We've never talked about scavenger hunt design before. Indeed. Thank you, Beth, for bringing that to our ears. Uh, we had fun. If you did too, let us know. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM. Hit us up. Give us your thoughts, feedback, uh, questions, suggestions, ideas. We're open. As well as if you want to leave us a review on iTunes. That means a lot. Uh, those reviews, even just a star rating, helps us move up the charts, helps new people discover the show. And Well, not uh, a star rating. If it's one star, it moves us down. Yeah, five stars would be super rad. A five star rating. <laughs> So we appreciate five star rating. If you've been following along, uh, just leave us a review or hit us up on Twitter. Of course, before you do any of that, be sure to check out Wayno at ueno.co. They sponsored this episode. They make what we do possible, and we couldn't be happier to work with such an awesome, talented group of people doing incredible work. You should go check out their work. Hang out with them on Fridays at their happy hours, and if you need a new job. Click the careers link in their header. Tell them we sent you. That's at ueno.co. Also, their Twitter is the funniest Twitter. It's worth following. At ueno.dotco. They're the best. Thank you once again to Ueno. We'll see you on Wednesday with Jeannie No.